Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, <laughs> a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. Oh, I'm Mommy Natuso. I'm Ann Friedman. So today we're talking about fear. And our guest a little bit later in the show is uh, the journalist Eva Holland, who has a new book out called Nerve Adventures in the Science of Fear, which feels kind of timely. Hi. Hi, friend. Hi. It's a rough day over here. How's it going? I'm doing okay. You know, minute to minute, day to day, I guess, is the answer. I feel like my temptation is, like, when I am texting friends to check in or whatever, to ask for the, like, how is this week so far? Or, like, really limiting the amount of time because <laughs> like, it's just such right a hard... this moment? Yeah. How is right now this moment for you? <laughs> Right now, this moment for me is rough, but the show must go on. So let's do it. A friend of mine posted something this week about how like uh, people who usually cope with their anxieties or uncertainties by making plans are like really struggling right now. And I was like, wow, suddenly like all of my intense meal planning, all of my work to do lists, which are always a thing. Like I do those things all the time, like forever an editor, but the level to which I am committed to them right now and relying on them was really thrown into some relief. So like my answer is how am I doing? I am making extensive plans about kind of low stakes things that I can control. Like that's, I think that's my most accurate answer. And I'm making some really delicious meals. Like that's, that's my other answer. <laughs> oh man. And that sounds delicious and cozy. And uh, once again, I am sad not to be quarantining with you. Ugh, I'm, I am also sorry. You're not quarantining with me. Today's episode topic is like, well, maybe a bummer, maybe not. I can't decide. Um, I this- am not bummed out by it. So today we're talking about fear, and our guest a little bit later in the show is uh, the journalist Eva Holland, who has a new book out called Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, which feels kind of timely, but also maybe not. Like, maybe it's just always. I know. I was excited to listen to you do this interview because I feel the same way. I was like, am I interested in fear because of right now, or am I also someone who is just always interested in all the things I'm afraid of and I think that for me the latter is more true I am a person who is afraid a lot and also someone who loves to be afraid so it's um (laughs) it's you know it's like a two sides of the same demented coin have you listened to the WNYC 10 things that scare me podcast we maybe talked about it before no Um, tell me about this podcast well, I'm kind of cu- I, I sort of want to rip it off a little bit and and do it with you here because the premise is that they have guests who are sometimes like known famous people and sometimes just like average New Yorkers who are not famous record themselves listing 10 things that scare them. And one reason I find I mean, one reason I love it is it's very short. You can kind of like listen to a little one at the end of some other podcast you've listened to just tack it on. But I also love the fact that it showcases different ways that people interpret afraid of, you know? So like, for example, some people will be like, I'm scared of spiders and like stubbing my toe or whatever. And then someone else will be like, "Um, I'm scared by the reality that everyone I love will die. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like it's a real spectrum of uh, answers. Um, 
So should we play? Do you want a list? Yes, let's do it. Tell me. I, I have not written my list down, so it'll, you know. Me neither. Well, maybe we should trade off. Okay. I am very, very, very afraid of snakes. Like the Indiana Jones pit of snakes? <laughs> I, I'm not one of those people that's like afraid of spiders or whatever. It's not the bug factor of it all. It is the specific, like, it's like the specificity of the snake itself. I don't like that it slithers. I think I maybe watched <laughs> Anaconda, like, too young as a kid. And there was this, like, Indian film that my cousins made me watch when I was, like, a baby about, like, a cobra that was basically attacking everyone. And I think that is the root cause of my fear of snakes. I have seen snakes in person. It was not as dramatic as I thought it would be, but it's not a thing that I'm down for. I don't even like seeing the snake emoji. So I'm going to put that in the fear category. Mine, which I sort of realized kind of late in life, is I'm scared of ocean waves. Like, I'm not scared of being in the ocean. I'm not scared of even, like, deep ocean or, like, like the idea of, like, oh, I'm swimming off the side of a boat somewhere where I can't, like, I know that the, the floor is way beneath me and I'm, like, you know, mm. way, way up, suspended. I am more scared of, like, the idea that the waves are just relentless and they keep coming. And it's like, it's been an interesting, like in the past decade of my life fear that developed probably because I did not interact with waves or ocean at all, like for the first 20 years of my life. But I also now have nightmares related to it. Like my stress wow. dreams are always tsunamis. And I feel like it is not unrelated to me being scared to like dive under the waves. That's, that's a, wow. That's a heavy one. Is it? I don't know. I, I guess like... Um, I mean, and but I also afraid enough that it gives you anxiety dreams, I think I would put in the heavy category. And I also think that it's like my worst kind of fear is the thing that you enjoy doing, like an aspect of it being scary. So like swimming or like mm. being out in the ocean. I was like, that's awful. It's funny. I don't think that's my brain being like, I'm so scared of waves that you're having dreams about it. It's more like when I'm anxious about something else that manifests as a wave, if that makes sense. Like I'm anxious because I have deadlines or like I'm having a problem in a relationship I care about and or I'm feeling really stressed. And, and the way I experience that is like as a wave. I don't know. It's a weird thing. And it's like it's also um, I'm interested in it because it like I said, it's not unlike your kind of snake childhood phobia. It feels like it's come up for me later in life fair what about you you want to go again um <laughs> this one is interesting <laughs> i love this game i love this game <laughs> because it's making me think i'm i'm thinking so much about like what the meaning of fear actually is you know um mm -hmm. because my late in life thing that has crept up is that i've become a really bad flyer and I have watched it like get worse as I was a teenager. And then like later in my 30s, it is just like out of control. Now, am I afraid enough of flying that I'm not on a plane? No, I'm on a plane all the time. So it's actually nuts that I'm afraid <laughs> of flying. <laughs> I did have one time where I was so terrified I didn't get on the plane. Like I was having anxiety about that and about something else. And I was at the gate and I just like decided not to get on the plane. But in... I, you know, I would say that that's a pretty good track record for someone who claims to be as afraid of flying as I am. But it's just, you know, I don't know what it is. It's like the turbulence freaks me out. The, the various noises freak me out. It's probably also like low oxygen and existential dread at the same time, you know, being in a mm. tin can in the sky. Like there's no way that you can just like 
think about yourself floating 40,000 feet above the earth and not start to think about your life in some sort of ways. <laughs> so this one, this one is interesting. And I have like a couple of different coping mechanisms for it. This fear is the one fear that I'm like, I will, I will really try to rein it in because otherwise it will hamper my lifestyle in a serious way. So I, you know, like I, I went to a therapy for it. I have, you know, I have apps on my phone for it. It's a thing that I'm like consciously always trying to work on as a fear and I would say to like varying degrees of success now in the pandemic, I was like, <laughs> I don't ever want to get on a plane again. And I imagine that my next flight will be interesting. This one is weird. It's like developed later in life. I would say that it's pretty bad. Like it like sends me, you know, like I, I, I have like a physical reaction to it, but also I'm like, I'm still doing it. So unclear. Mm. It's funny you mentioning also just like this pandemic moment, like one thing that I am very aware of right now that I'm afraid of is that I have to work very hard to not let myself spin out into these like kind of worst possible future long-term scenarios. Like, and I'm talking about like reading some news about voter suppression or election officials failing to account for this moment when they think about um, making changes to how people are going to vote or rather not making changes. And then I start to spin out to, oh my God, what if there's no presidential election at all? And this is how like, you know, this horrible Cheeto becomes a dictator. And you know what I mean? Like I really go to like the very like, not implausible, but I would say that like I have, I have tried to keep myself from thinking about the chain of events that could happen based on things that are happening right now. And I, that's always true, right? Like you can always do a chain of events based on current events that looks horrible and apocalyptic and even worse than it is right now. And I think that for me, that has just never been a more present hazard, maybe. It's a lot harder for me to tap into a place where I'm like, oh, this is how we get a bunch of social safety net programs or something like that. <laughs> like my mind is not my mind is not going to that scenario, which is, you know, like not 100% implausible that that could happen. But uh, yeah, my policy, baby. I love it. <laughs> I mean, yes. And also, you know. I was watching a PBS Nova documentary about the planets, all about how Venus and greenhouse gases like have created like a hellscape. And I had to turn it off because I was like, the future of Earth is a Venusian hellscape. Like I really, that is not a normal part of my personality. Normally I can watch space documentaries without spinning out. So I know that there is like something happening with fear and like loss of control and like the chaos of this moment in my mind, even if I am trying to suppress it. That's so real, Anne. That's so real. <laughs> I like I want to laugh about it, but I'm like, yeah, I can't handle that documentary. <laughs> okay, but shout out to PBS Nova. I love that they interview actual scientists. I know. <laughs> PBS has been my PBS has been my lifeline these days. It's the best. Okay. I don't quite know how to explain this fear, but it is like I am always afraid that I don't know what's going on. Not in the sense of like a... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, I'm sorry to laugh at your fears. I know, Anne. Can you please take my fear seriously? I'm sorry. No, I'm so sorry. You can laugh because really I'm rambling and I'm trying to really get to the bottom of it. It's not that I don't trust the people in my life, like in my interpersonal relationships, but I guess I just do not trust that people are being... Um, pe and by people, I mean society is being honest. And so like this fear, for example, is like... Uh, 
this this fear manifests in um, Donald Trump, like winning an election or mm. Brexit. It's not like I'm some sort of like naive, like progressive oaf who thinks that like the everything will go my way. In fact, I'm always shocked when things go my way. But I think that there are certain political events that happen that make me deeply distrust my own instincts and the trust in the social fabric. Like, I don't know how to quantify that. That's what makes me spin out all the time. It's like when I'm like reading political polls or whatever and, you know, and people in Ohio are like, yes, we would like to reopen the, the economy. Um, uh, this poll is made up, obviously, um, <laughs> you know, or, or people in another country are like, yes, white nationalism, bring it back to me or what, you know, I'm just like, it's 2020. Why are we, why are we backsliding? Why is, why does society look one way on, you know, on paper? And then when people go in voting booths, like they make other kinds of choices. And I think that this fear is tied into the fact for me that I try to be like fairly transparent and, I am always assuming that everyone is operating on the same kind of like transparency like level as me. And I find that like consistently, I find that that is not true. Mm. It's interesting. I have a, I have a related fear, but I feel, I feel like maybe the contours of it are a little bit different. And it's that I share that sentiment of like, I just don't know what's going on. But for me, it's, it's less about, maybe like what I think the world is versus like how voters reveal it to me and more about how it's, it's more related to just like bubble effect. Um, right. You know, where I'm talking to my friends and we all agree that, um, white nationalism is really not a good look. And then, (laughs) and then, but then I realize, um, or I know that that is not true of everyone. And like, those are people who, um, you know, are so far are removed from my experience to such a degree. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there is something about that fear of, I have no desire to go back to um, a way of operating in this country where there are like six national news outlets and everyone's all watching them together. And those people control the narrative for everyone. Like that is not, that does not sound good to me, but the flip side of like complete polarization. And there is like nothing that is truly agreed upon also is a source of fear. And I really, I think, like at the heart of it, it's about not knowing what a middle ground looks like, like a productive mm-hmm. and positive middle ground to those two things. I will say that one interesting thread in this book, Eva Holland, is really on a quest to kind of get rid of some of her fears. She has a fear of heights. She has a fear of car accidents. She has a lot of fears related to losing her mother and people who are close to her, you know, like not wild, you know, out there phobias, like pretty, pretty common things that people are scared of. And she's really trying to cure herself of those fears. And I really found myself wondering as I was reading the book, like, isn't this just a necessary part of being like a thinking, feeling, empathetic human? Like, what's the point of trying to cure ourselves of all fears? And, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to treat trauma or things like that. I'm not trying to be that overarching about it. But I do feel like, you know, the kind of fears that we're talking about now are a result of like being human beings who are in the world. Ooh, I remain very excited to listen to this interview i think it's interesting to hear you go through this the list of things that she's afraid of you know the people dying and the heights and and whatever and and every one of those that you said i was like oh yeah i'm afraid of that or i think i'm afraid of that or (laughs) i've been afraid of that at some point in my life 
like heights is always a thing that I forget that I am afraid of heights until I'm somewhere very like I, I do the whole trek and then I, I'm on a hike somewhere and then it's like, oh, I'm actually afraid. Why did I forget this? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a miserable, you know, like the last switchback is always the most miserable because at that point I've like <laughs> fully tapped into the fear. But I, I, you know, I guess I'm just like thinking about it so much as fear being something that you can overcome and also something that can have like an either like an outsized impact on your life or something that you can learn to to be in control of. And so the fears that are like being born in this moment of pandemic, I wonder like how long they're going to last. You know, is it something that like for the rest of my life, am I going to have am I going to have these same fears or, you know, will this moment pass and then I'm going to be scared shitless of something else? Unclear. I know, or or whether it is a moment to overcome certain things because we will be so happy to be back out in the world again. I'm like, like when I do uh, like silly Instagram live dance classes alone, does that mean I will be less afraid of doing group coordinated exercise in the future? <laughs> like, stay tuned. Wow. I don't know. I want, I want this fear. I want this fear gone for you and for me very selfishly. Oh, I really, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. We don't know. But also, (laughs) yeah. And also I think that so much of it is I'm interested in, you know, like how you conquer those things, like how, Mm -hmm. and so much of the battle really is recognizing that what the fear is and then coming up with a plan for it. But I think that I'm also interested in this conversation because I think that there's still a lot of shame around things that people are afraid of. Like it's, I think that we all understand that we have fears, but you feel so alone in them sometimes that <laughs> talking talking through them with other people makes you realize that like, oh, it's actually pretty common. And also there's maybe a way out of it. Right. Or that it feels stupid and frivolous, right? To be afraid of the thing you're afraid of. Right. Like my aforementioned dance class fear. <laughs> <laughs> I um. I l- listen when this is all over you and I are going to a dance class that's what I want that's what I want for my birthday next year thank you I wish you could see how my body just constricted <laughs> much like a large snake <laughs> no not a snake reverence <laughs> but no truly like pitting my desire to celebrate your birthday against my desire to never try to attempt coordinated moves in a room full of people is like i can't decide if it's genius or cruelty wow (laughs) let's see it will they make it through year 11 stay tuned (laughs) (laughs) i don't know do you want to listen to this interview i do want to listen to this interview okay let's take a break and then i'll be back with eva holland Eva, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I realize that I'm doing a very like chipper hello and intro for a conversation about fear, but it also feels like maybe that's the, I don't know, maybe maybe that's an appropriate attitude. I have, I have a, like a, a whole range of emotions about fear after reading your book. Maybe start at the end and talk a little bit about how you are thinking about your book in this particular pandemic moment. It's been a very interesting time to have just completed this project, obviously. Um, 
various other words besides interesting might be appropriate there too. But um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about having spent two years, you know, learning about fear systems in our bodies. And, and now I'm like lying awake at night, listening to my heart race. And, and I, at the very least, I understand what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you could, what is going on in all of those bodies? You know, your chest tightens, your, your heart races, your pupils dilate, um, your muscles contract, you might get goosebumps. Um, it's your body getting ready to respond to, to this incoming threat. And that is essentially what fear is. Fear is both that physical response and then secondarily what happens is we become aware of our body's preparation for the threat and that's when the emotion occurs where we say, I'm scared. You have this line in in the very beginning of your book where you where you say in almost this confessional way, I can't say I'm perfectly in control of my fears. And I honestly had this thought where like, it didn't even occur to me that one could be in control of their fears at all, let alone perfectly. Like it didn't even feel possible. And uh, I'm wondering if you could, if you could speak to that, like this, this feeling of wanting to be in control of them or have a handle on them and, and talk a little bit about what you did to try to get there. Yeah, I guess I never expected to be perfectly in control either, but I think what I was shooting for was to no longer experience a total loss of control. So I had had these various sort of panic attacks and, and meltdowns around heights over the years. And then I was experiencing these, these flashbacks and intrusive thoughts and sort of visions of doom when I was driving um, after a series of car accidents. And I just, I didn't want to have almost out of body experiences from my fear anymore. And I, it was, well, you know, it's very meta, but it was frightening to have that level of, of, to have fear have that level of power over me um, to the point of what felt like endangerment. So what I did on sort of two tracks is I addressed the, the trauma from my car accidents with a therapy called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that was reckon, recommended to me by some feelings professionals that I know. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was uh, really, really effective for me. No trauma treatment is effective for everyone. And, and they're most effective when the, when the trauma is relatively uncomplex. So my issue was clearly tied to cars, specifically driving cars on highways in icy or wet conditions. So that was relatively straightforward to untangle as opposed to maybe a more complex childhood trauma that relates to your household or something like that. It's, it's harder to sort of um, target those memories. Um, and on the other track with the heights thing, I tried various things and it was a bit trickier. I tried sort of a DIY exposure therapy program with rock climbing. I did try skydiving, which was highly ineffective. Shock and awe is not an appropriate form of exposure therapy as it turns out generally. Uh, and then I did an experimental drug treatment in Amsterdam that, uh, seems to have gotten more traction. So I, I came a lot further than I expected to, um, to be honest. Those two examples are obviously throughout the book, but the, the other experience of fear that is really the through line in the book is about you losing your mother. And I, it feels a little bit to me like it feels fundamentally different than something like Cars and Heights, um, you know, in a way because like it's true, there's the threat that anyone can be injured at any time in a car accident, but it is a guaranteed thing that like we will all lose someone who 
matters to us so intensely. And I'm just wondering about your your feelings about not to not to go back to this question about categories, but um, thinking about this idea of um, being in control of a fear when it comes to something that is maybe a little bit more tied to the experience of being a human being, like love and loss. Mm-hmm. That's one where there's there's no possibility of control, right? There's no there's no way that that's something you can have sway over um, the possibility of loss. It's, it's not even a possibility, as you say, it's a guarantee. And so in that case, the progress that I guess I made was just understanding, um, understanding grief more fully than I had before, not having, you know, I had lost my grandparents and, and, and various other people, but I hadn't lost somebody that close to me before my mom. And, um, and so the lesson there wasn't really about control or, or learning some kind of calming technique or anything like that. It was, it was just understanding how grief works and going through it and coming out the other side and saying, okay, now you know what this is like and you know that you can go through it. And, and yes, you will lose more people in future, um, but you'll get through that too, you know because you know what this what this ride looks like now. I mentioned this on a previous episode of the podcast because I keep thinking about it, but um, Mary Choi does a podcast called Hey Cool Life, and she had a, like a rumination on this moment of pandemic where she realized that she was kind of preemptively grieving. Mm. Um, and this was like fairly early on um, in, you know, the the kind of, the progress of this thing. Um, and it was very literal in the sense of very similar to the way you write about your preemptive fears of losing your mother. But it was also, you know, she sort of realized like a real time grieving for things that, um, you know, were already very different. And I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about that idea of fear as a preemptive grieving (laughs) or like the idea that maybe you can save yourself from future pain by trying to experience some of it in advance like that that's one thing she talked about that really resonated with me like as someone who um likes to feel like I'm on top of things you know like okay if I consider this as a possibility then it can't hurt as much when it actually happens right and I'm, I'm wondering about that aspect of fear and um and what you know your research on that had to say Right. Yeah. We, we try to think our way through these things, right? Like if we can game them out somehow. Um, and I did that a lot when I found out that my mom had had her stroke, but before we had turned the life support off, I spent, well, I had 36 hours to try to get, um, get to the hospital from the other side of the continent. And, and I spent a lot of that time sort of convincing myself that the worst was going to happen and where some people might, I suppose, have an instinct to convince themselves that it would be okay. I was sort of trying to inoculate myself against what I assumed was going to happen. Um, And I think there's probably some value in that um, kind of visualization, but you can also terrorize yourself with that stuff, I suppose. Speaking of visualizations, I also wanted to ask you about dreams. You know, there's a, there's a part of the book where you talk about, you know, our dreaming brains and sort of the way we remember or interpret dreams as, like something that can kind of fuel our fears or confirm them. And, um, and I would love to hear you talk about that a little bit. I read Alice Robb's book, Why, Why We Dream, while I was working on this book. And 
I haven't ever had an experience of lucid dreaming, but I, I really appreciated her sort of her point that even though science says that dreams are fairly random and, you know, the ones that seem meaningful, it's because we remember them, but we discard thousands of others that, that wouldn't seem applicable. Um, she's sort of still sort of validated, but they, you know, that, that heft that they can, that they can have, you can wake up and just have a dream that really stays with you. And, um, I had so many dreams connected to my mom, uh, after she died and it, it, it felt, it felt like a real part of my processing. Um, and I kept coming across ways in which sleep and dreams seemed to be connected to trauma and memory and, um, and how we resolve phobias. And it just, it's, I, was, I, I don't feel like I figured it out as much as I would like to um, in the book, but it, it felt like this kind of pulse under the surface. I'm one, I want to ask you about, there's this, uh, it, it kept occurring to me as I read your book, there's this trope in a lot of movies that there is a, like, usually the protagonist who's like, quote, afraid of everything, you know, a person who's like afraid of life, who is just dictated, who's driven by their fears. And then the arc of the movie is about them, like meeting, meeting and falling in love with someone or having a near death experience or something that like turns them into a person who takes risks. And then that's kind of like the moral arc of the movie. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about like, you do mention at a few places of the book that, um, obviously like not everyone experiences fear in the same way or in the same quantities. And it has to do with a lot of other things in your background and your experiences. Um, but I'm wondering about this idea of there being a cultural value in, in being like a person who's not afraid of anything. I feel like that's a very self-helpy notion. And, um, I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah. I think that there's this this phenomenon for sure where we we praise courage and we praise fearlessness you know she's so fearless that's that's a, that's a compliment right and and there's sort of shame and embarrassment or at least sort of like minor public embarrassment um, wrapped up in being afraid of things or admitting that you're afraid we're supposed to be gutsy we're supposed to go for it um, you know carpe diem and I really, I mean, I think one thing that, that working on the book did for me as much as maybe I, I overcame some fears or, or, or whatever we want to describe that as is that I sort of stopped feeling like it was embarrassing to be afraid. I'd spent so much time being just mortified by this, this part of me and, uh, and I'm kind of over it. Like, I'm kind of like, no, uh, yeah, I cry when I hike sometimes like <laughs> what of it? <laughs> Um, and I hope that that catches on a little bit, you know, and, and not just with stuff like stuff that can seem kind of superficial, like a very specific phobia, but, but with trauma and anxiety as well, you know, like it, we spend a lot of time trying to tough things out, I feel like, and, and, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know that there's a lot of value in that. Right. And so in, in your mind and given like everything, you know, you know, based on your research on the brain and the body, like what is a better way to approach, you know, some deep seated fear rather than a tough it out or like just try to get over it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I should say like being in a constant state of heightened fear is not good for us. Like it's not good for your body to be in that kind of like adrenaline mode. Um, so I, when I've 
you know, when I say that it's sort of okay to be afraid, I'm not saying that we should all just walk around feeling anxious all the time. Um, but I think that just for me, at least my panics and my responses were always heightened by the shame and the embarrassment. You know, I would, people would come along and I would freak out more because I was like, Oh God, now I'm going to freak out in front of these people. And it's just like going to get worse and worse. It's sort of a spiral. Right. Like having your fear witnessed was part of the, the fear itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think to the extent that we can kind of accept these responses as something to maybe breathe through, you know, let it feel it, let it pass, whatever, whatever the case may be for you in your specific circumstance. I, I think if you can kind of I, not try to bury it so much that it bursts out of you every which way, but just sort of allow it, <laughs> I guess, to an extent, um, I think that helps. That certainly helps me. Um, trying to squelch it never did me any good. All it did was make things worse. I'm, I'm hearing you say there's a difference between the squelching or trying to squelch it and the desire to move past it. So I think it comes back to when we were talking about control earlier. Squelching it is like this sort of desperate attempt at control. Um, and and it's no, it can feel like you're sort of, I don't know, like trying to run on a really shiny floor or something and you can't get any traction because you can't, you can't control these reactions perfectly. And so I think dealing with it is more about understanding the reaction, maybe trying to preempt the reaction. Um, you know, the, the, the exposure therapy program that I did was about trying to stop. You, you start to do the thing that scares you and you stop before you freak out. And then the next time, you try to go one step further. So the classic is, you know, if you're afraid of elevators, one day maybe you go and you look at an elevator. And the next day maybe you take one step closer to that elevator. And the next day maybe you stand on the threshold of the elevator. Um, and the idea there is is to do all of that without freaking out. So so you're not squelching a panic. You're, you're, you're building a pattern of resilience and a way of avoiding the panic in the first place. Because once the panic starts, in, in my experience, it can't be squelched amid panic. Um, so a lot of these treatments are about learning to avoid sort of sending your brain down that path. It's about having tools, I guess, to manage our reactions, preempt them or, or avoid uh, inflaming them further. Um, I'm curious about how you have been experiencing fear as it relates to this pandemic moment. Mm. I was really scared early on um, when things were at their most uncertain. Um, I was sort of uh, terrified. Um, you know, when, when sort of Italy was getting hit and it felt like all of North America was like, well, now what? Um, and and I, was, I was thinking, you know, like, what if my dad and my stepmom both die? What if my stepdad dies? What if like everyone I know over 70 dies, you know, um, I was, I was never really afraid for myself, but I had a lot of fear and I had a lot of fear about some of the remote, um, communities around where I live, you know, in, in Northern Canada and Alaska, those communities are so vulnerable, um, very limited medical infrastructure, you know, elders who are language keepers, and I, I just had these, in addition to sort of worrying about family and loved ones, I had these visions of just, just catastrophe in these communities. Um, and I've calmed down with time, 
as as each sort of possible uncertainty has resolved, even though things are really bad in lots of ways, um, you know, I feel more calm with more information and less uncertainty. I know that my parents are at risk, but I also know that they are <laughs> being more careful than some boomers. Um, action to mitigate the threat can help us calm down. The worst moment is, I think, that moment of just fear and uncertainty where you you're just waiting for the blow you know well and that's kind of why I ask about it too I think for myself it's very difficult to separate I mean fear is totally rational in this moment I think but also you know ask some questions about like who's really at risk here and um, sort of a fear of a change or an impending change, but then also this fear that like things will be forever as they are in this moment, you know, the fear that like actually things won't ever change. And, and I think that, you know, for me, I've, I've undergone a bit of a shift from fearing change um, is coming to fearing that this is the status quo, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've kind of made a, made a shift and, and maybe I'm kind of reading into that as a, as a recurring theme of your book, but I don't, I don't know if you have thoughts on that as well. Like the fear of a shift versus fear of never, ever seeing a shift again. No, I think that makes sense. I think that is, that is in there, you know, um, after my mom died, people told me I wouldn't be as sad as I was forever. And I was like, I don't believe you, <laughs> you know, this is, this is how I am now. I'm a miserable person. Um, and, and they were right. And I was wrong. Um, but that's a hard thing to convince yourself of in the moment, right. Um, in the moment of fear or dread or, or sadness or, or anger, it's like, how is this ever going to go away? Um, and yeah, I think that's a real, a real fear. And I, I think you're right that that was a theme because I was, I was afraid that, that my reactions to, I wasn't just afraid that I would be sad forever about my mom. I was also afraid that, that my reaction to heights would never change and that my reaction to driving would never change and that I was just going to be stuck this way. Um, mm. And I was, I was wrong on all three of those counts, but that's, it's harder to convince yourself of that when, when the feelings that we're experiencing right now are because of aren't just internal to yourself they're they're because of what's happening in in society all around you so it's it's harder to say well of course this is temporary when we we don't know you know like man i miss going to bars and i and i say that not in like <laughs> not in like a problematic relationship with alcohol way but just in a like i miss going to the bar with my friends and and we don't know how long it will be till we get to do that again and it, it might be a really long time. Um, and I think that comes back to, to the preemptive grief stuff is, is it's hard to separate how much of what we're feeling right now is fear and how much is, is grief, right? They're, they're so tightly connected. Right. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, there is sort of a parting sentiment that you have that feels um, appropriate for this moment and the fears that it is, you know, rationally or irrationally stoking? Mm -hmm. You know, when all of this started, people were like, oh, your, your book about fear is going to be so timely. And, and I thought I didn't, it felt too dark to say it out loud early on. And maybe it's still a dark thing to say, but I was kind of like, uh, I think the grief parts might be as relevant as the fear parts to what's coming. I do feel like I learned how to grieve over the course of working on the book. And, and I guess what I learned is that grief is, is not 
something to be scared of the way I had been terrified of it because my mom's grief for her parents was so complicated by all kinds of other factors like being shipped off to boarding school and not being allowed to go to the funeral and and all this sort of stuff and so I I really had this vision of grief as catastrophic but but grief can be can be kind of wonderful right and and it's it's hard but it's but it's important and it's natural and and so um I've kind of let go of my fear of the grieving process and I I guess I wish for other people to be able to let go of some of that fear too, because, because we're certainly all headed for a grieving period here in one way or another. Or we're already in it. Yeah. Eva, thanks for being on the show. It was a real pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me, Anne. I can't wait to read this book now. Ugh. Well, I can't wait to see you on the internet, um, far, far from the crashing waves and snakes and existential dread about this moment. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, one more book that I'm going to plug to you before we leave, though, is that remember how at the top of the hour we were mentioning our fear of not trusting people politically or whatever? Mm-hmm. I want to recommend a book that is not about that at all, <laughs> but it's kind of related. <laughs> that just made me think of it. It's called The Monarchy of Fear, and it's by um, the philosopher Martha C. Nussbaum. It's a very, very, very small tome, so I think everyone should read it, but it really is about, it's about like what the right way to be angry is and what Americans are afraid of. And so there's a lot in it that I'm just like, you know, like philosophical debates are like hard for me because hashtag college. But um, I will always write for a woman philosopher. And also I do think that it is like very, very, very instructive to think about fear as um, Martha Nussbaum like writes about the 2016 election, basically making everyone feel like fear was suffusing society. And Mm. she just has this like beautiful argument about how fear is ubiquitous in human life it starts like when we're really young because of the um what she calls the primal state of helplessness which i think i'm constantly in um (laughs) it's a lifestyle right (laughs) and then she's like you know she's like then you grow older you become able to like get what you want and um and then you know and then you're also like on your way to dying so that gives like your fear more boost but Um, she talks a lot about all of the threats that heighten the fear. And so thinking about the extreme polarization and like people's conflicting views and conditions like, you know, globalization, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. And how all of that just like makes for a really acute sense of powerlessness and fear in people was really instructive to read. So Mm. I um, highly recommend the monarchy of fear. I'm excited to read that. Oh, Nothing, nothing but Rex. My two read stack is heaving. I mean, my, um, the, this is all the books that I recommend now to people. I'm always like, it's very short. It's very short. <laughs> I was like, I know, no. Spoken like a woman who wrote a short book. <laughs> um, you know, it's true. We wrote a very, um, like a, like a, a slim, a slim meditation. I have to say that the day I realized our book was actually kind of short was one of my best days in this process. <laughs> I was like, wow, people can recommend it and say like, it will not take up like so much of your time. It's a pretty quick. I love that for us. I love that for us. Um, Okay, my love, I will see you on the internet. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. 
That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.